Well, church, let me invite you to open your Bibles this morning to 1 John. 1 John, you're going to find that towards the very back of the Bible. If you could find the book of Revelation, which would be the last book of the Bible, and you just go towards the front of the Bible, a couple pages, you'll find 1 John there. We're going to be in chapter 2. This is, I think, sermon number 4 of, I've outlined 20 sermons in 1 John that will take us time to get through, so I hope that's okay. And uh, so here we are, um, somewhere around 20% done. I, um, I, I'll just kind of, I haven't said this, maybe I've said this to you already, but um, remind you if I haven't, um, let you know, if, um, remind you if I have, let you know if I haven't. First John, I am finding a, a kind of a tough book. Not, not tough to understand, but uh, tough to like apply. I feel like I'm being beaten up a little bit by First John. And so I don't know if you're going to feel beaten up a little bit in our study of First John. Uh, He says some really strong things, and uh, I think I'll be led to say some strong things this morning. And 1 John is one of those books that where he beats you up a little bit, and then he comes back and he encourages you, and then he beats you up a a little bit, and then he kind of encourages you. And so if you feel beaten up on one Sunday, you might be encouraged the next Sunday. So um, just kind of hang tight. It is the Word of God. It's glorious. It's helpful, even when uh, sometimes it's a bit challenging. So... Uh, with that, um, probably not needed introduction, um, let me invite you here to hear God's word from 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 3 this morning. Hear now the word of God. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him Truly, the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Our Father, we're thankful for your word this morning, and uh, we pray that it would do its work in our hearts. Perhaps we need to be admonished this morning. Perhaps we need to be encouraged this morning. I pray that your spirit would apply all that is said, and that it would be... All that is said would be true, and if not true, not helpful, I pray that it would, it would be forgotten or dismissed. We pray that Christ would be glorified even as we study his word. We're thank, thankful, Father, for the Bible, and that we can consider it, and in considering it, hear our God talk to us. And so we come with uh, great anticipation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It was on June 18th, 2021 that uh, Seattle resident Andrew Devers, age 25, decided to go for a quick hike in the uh, Snoqualmie National Forest up there in Washington State. Uh, I learned about this young man from a uh, survival podcast that I like to uh, uh, listen to every once in a while. It's a a podcast about people get in trouble in nature and uh, survive. Uh, So some of the titles of the podcast are I Survived a 100-Foot Fall, uh, what is it like to be hit by lightning, uh, pinned to a mountain by a storm, alone with a compound fracture, mauled by a grizzly bear, frostbitten and stranded under an avalanche, lost, blind, and running out of time. So I do uh, recommend it to you. It's very interesting, although it's not Christian, just so you know. Um, so don't be surprised. The, the, this podcast in particular begins with these words, to a lone hiker, the woods teem with threats. There are wild animals, of course, and exposure to the elements. There are the looming risks of dehydration, starvation, and the terror that comes with the fall of darkness. But for some, worse 
than the fear of the woods themselves are the ruthless fabrications of one's own mind. So uh, with that introduction, Dever began his hike, uh, as I mentioned, on June 18th last year, um, just a day hike. He was going out, and uh, so he soon encountered a sign on the trail that said, landslide ahead, don't go this way. Now, for every self-respecting hiker or backpacker, we see such signs not as advice to adhere to, but as, a, as an obstacle to overcome. And uh, Devers was uh, like the rest of us, and so he uh, pursued on. He would say, I was, on my, I was in my own head for, I don't know, 30 minutes or so, and I looked around, and I had lost the trail. I continued for roughly 20 or 30 more minutes, and suddenly I'm just a man in a forest. And it's starting to get like maybe four or five. At that point, I started to freak out. I realized that as night would go on, I would just make worse decisions, and my chances of injuring myself would be a little high. I didn't know where the way was out, so I just started walking. <laughs> he continued saying, eventually it became dark. I needed a sense of security, so I put my back to a tree, lied in a fetal position, and endured the night. So that's how the story begins. You could, you could catch up to it if you like. There's aimless wanderings, falling and piercing of a kneecap, being swept away by a river, a fear, rage, and lots of screaming um, as uh, this man endured uh, the wilderness. He is found eight days later, having uh, lived off acorns and salmon berries, and uh, by the way, he's found a mile from his car. Uh, this might be a good uh, time to let you know, by the way, that our fathers are going camping with their children in just a couple weeks. Uh, you can sign up at the welcome desk if you would like. All my kids, uh, if you've been around for a little bit, you know, uh, most of you know all my kids are backpackers. We're, we, we like camping. We're a camping family. We're a backpacking family. Backpacking's like camping, except you carry all your gear in a backpack. So you set up camp, you stay in that camp, and the morning comes, you put everything in your backpack, and you walk eight or ten miles over mountains and through meadows and cross rivers, and then you reset up everything, and then you just continue that for as long as you, you want to do that. And we, we go every year for like a week-long hike. We just went over Labor Day weekend down in southwest Virginia. And uh, I take uh, seven, my seven oldest kids. My five-year-old hasn't quite there yet. They start backpacking when they're six years old. And, and so uh, they join the troop, and we always go out for a week or so. And though we go as a family, we don't hike as a family. Uh, and so uh, usually uh, kids are a couple miles ahead of me on the trail. I'm usually the caboose. I'm picking up the stragglers and uh, making sure that no one gets lost on this end. Uh, and so that's kind of how we hike. Of course, I recognize by being so spread out, there's some dangers involved. Um, I, I do remember a couple of years ago, we were hiking in Pennsylvania. And I, again, I was at the end, and I remember my oldest daughter coming running down the trail towards me uh, without her pack on, her face is pale, yelling, Daddy, Daddy, Maggie's bleeding everywhere. And so that was quite alarming. Um, and so there, there are challenges and uh, difficulties uh, with hiking. One of the challenges with hiking, as uh, the story of Devers tells us, is that it's very easy to get lost. Um, and we've trained our kids on, on what to do when you lose the trail. You, depending on where you are, you're going to lose the trail two, three times a day. And when you, when you lose the trail, the thing you don't do is continue hiking forward. Now, that makes common sense, right, as Devers did. You, instead, you lose the trail. What you do is you turn around and you go back to where you came, and then eventually you'll find the trail, and then you say, okay, I see how it veered off this way, and I, and I, I missed it that way. And in particular, uh, it, it's harder to lose trail in some of the local mountains because in, in the eastern mountains on the trails, there are what's called trail blazes. That is, 
people will paint a tree, a stripe on a tree, every 500 feet to tell you where the trail is. And then you'll get a double blaze, like two stripes, if there's a junction or a switchback or something like that. You need to be alert. The trail's going to get a little tricky. Where I really like to backpack is out, out west. And in particular, I like to get above the timber line so that, so the trees can't grow 10, 12,000 feet up there. And so there's no trees to put blazes on. In fact, there's no trees, there's no vegetation because the air's too thin. And so there's no uh, vegetation holding, holding the dirt in, uh, on the ground. So there's actually no dirt at this elevation. It's all rock. And so there's no dirt, therefore there's no trail. And so what, what they do uh, at these elevations, they, they stack up rock cairns, just stacks of rocks that tell you you're going the right way. Well, we might be able to think of the Christian life as a long walk along a trail. And I think we might agree, if we've done this walk for any particular time, it's very easy to get lost. It's easy to veer off, to bypass meadows, we might think. So 1 John, the reason I bring this introduction up, 1 John is kind of like a, a book of rock cairns. Right? Our blaze is on a tree. It, it's a book of signs that we're on the right path, that we're headed in the right direction. We haven't lost the trail. And John is going to give us three signs, and he's going to repeat them throughout his book. So we'll keep coming back to them from different angles. And virtually every commentator recognizes the three signs of 1 John. One is the doctrinal sign. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Number two, the moral sign. Do you long to obey the commands of God? And number three, the social sign. Do you love the people? So do, do, do you believe Jesus? Do you love Christians? And do you obey God? And these signs... Some will call them tests, will help you evaluate whether you're truly a Christian. And we need to evaluate whether you're truly a Christian because the Bible tells us it's possible to be deceived, to be self-deceived, to think we're Christians and we're not. I would suggest to you, by the way, that I think there's probably hundreds of thousands of people in this world who think they're Christians and are not actually Christians, who think they're on the narrow way that leads to eternal life and are actually not on that trail at all, but they're on the Broadway that leads to destruction. And the, re the reason I believe this is because the Bible teaches this repeatedly. Jesus, I think, is very clear in the Sermon on the Mount when he says in Matthew chapter 7, not everyone says to me, who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me you workers of lawlessness. See, notice there in Jesus' teaching that these individuals thought themselves to be Christians, right? They, had, they, they knew about him. They looked at Jesus and called him Lord. They were active in ministry. And yet Jesus looks at them and says, I, I don't know you. I, I don't know who you are. And the reality is, is that not all non-Christians know they are non-Christians. Some non-Christians think they are Christians. And so I think 1 John is therefore exceedingly helpful, even if it's challenging. It, it, it might show us in our study, even today and throughout this letter, that some of you thought yourselves to be a Christian, and 1 John will show you that you're actually not. And that will be exceedingly helpful to you. That is perhaps one of the greatest gifts that God could give you, to actually reveal that truth to you, that you might actually address it. Others, we might be, begin to see some weak areas in our Christian life, areas in which we can seek growth. Others, First John might come and provide, you might be doubting your salvation, and it might come and provide this great assurance 
of salvation, which is in many ways the key, at least a key to the Christian life. You see, John tells us that we should seek assurance of salvation. We should seek assurance of salvation. You notice what he says here in verse 3. And by this we know we have come to know him. So not, not that we know him, but we know that we know him. Right? In fact, John loves the word know. He's going to use it 40 times in this little letter. He wants you not only to know Jesus, but he, and beyond that, he wants you to know that you know Jesus. Again, in verse 5, you see there at the very end, he says, uh, by this we may know we are in him. And John has these four wonderful purpose statements in his letter, uh, and one of them is found in chapter 5 and verse 13. You might turn there just for a moment. We won't flip around much today, but chapter 5, verse 13 is one of the four purpose statements found in John. And John says here, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So I'm writing to Christians. I'm writing to those who believe in the name of the Son of God. Why are you writing to Christians, John? Read on, verse 13, that you may know you have eternal life. So they have eternal life. He's writing so that they may know they have eternal life. This is what theologians have called the doctrine of assurance of salvation. That we can be assured that we are saved. And so whether you're saved or not, it's not something God wants you to worry about. It's not something that God wants you to wonder about. God wants you to have assurance that you are saved. He wants you to have certainty that you are saved. And perhaps I've mentioned this in a previous sermon, but all other world's religion offers no assurance of salvation because all other world's religions are based upon the works in which you do, and you never know if you've done enough works, and therefore you can never know if you've been, you're saved or not. Have I done enough to merit the everlasting life that this religion promised me? And you just have to die and find out. And that's every religion in the world that's based upon works. You have to, you'll never know. In fact, there was a, uh, uh, a man who was living in this area. He'd often worship with us who was raised as a Muslim living in Baghdad, Iraq. And he understood that he has to accumulate a certain amount of merit according to that religion with their God, Allah. And if he accumulates enough merit with Allah, then he'll get to go into the everlasting life. And so he was very concerned, am I accumulating enough merit? Well, he read that if you convert Christians to Islam, you get, you get a lot of merit with Allah. And so this is about 40 years ago, he smuggled a Bible into Baghdad in order to learn what Christians believe so he could argue with them and convert them to Islam. And uh, actually, uh, if you know the end of the story, he converted no one from uh, Christianity to Islam, but he himself was Christian, converted to Christianity through reading the Bible. Yeah. And now he knows, right? I mean, he got what he wanted in that sense. I want to know that I'm saved. And now that he is in Christ and resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ, he, might, he knows that he is saved. You can know. That's why John's writing this letter. Now, I think you think, well, why, why is this even an issue? And I wonder if something has occurred to, the, to these churches that is causing them to doubt whether they can actually know this. And he might be telling this, this in verse 19 of chapter 2. So just turn over there for just for a moment. Still in here, still here in chapter 2. What's causing them to doubt whether they can know? Uh, well, you read in verse 19 that uh, there's some individuals that have left the church. For John writes, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So people have left the church. And, and you can imagine the question in their mind is, I thought once you're saved, you're always saved. I thought Jesus loses none of his sheep. 
But then we have our friends who were in the church and singing songs with us and taking the Lord's Supper with us and teaching our Sunday school classes, and, and now, now they've left. Now they're gone. I don't know. You know anybody like that? 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, they were right by your side in the pew singing, praising Jesus, reading the Bible, going to Sunday school, mem- memorizing scripture, going on mission trips. And now uh, not only are they gone, they don't even believe anymore. And you might wonder the same thing that perhaps they were wondering, can you lose your salvation? Right? Is, is that what's happening here? Well, you notice how John deals with it. He says they left. Look again, verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. They were never actually part of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. So John's telling their leaving shows they were never part of the people of God at all. He doesn't say they were part of us and now they're not part of us. Rather, he says if they were part of us, they would have never left. Their leaving shows that they're truly not saved. But of course, that still kind of leaves the question. Well, can we know? If they, weren't, they thought they were saved, but they're not, can we know that we're saved? Can we have assurance? To which John here in verse 3 emphatically says, yes. Yes, Christian, you can know. He says, and by this we know we have come to know him. You, you can have assurance. And I believe assurance of salvation, if you have it, should, will empower your Christian life. I think about the life of Paul and all that he did and all that he suffered and all that he gave up for the Lord. How is he able to find strength in doing so? I think it's because he knew who he was in God. And he would tell us this over and over again. Think about Philippians 1 and verse 6. And he writes to that church, I'm confident that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. And 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, when he writes, for we know, brothers, that he has chosen you. Or 2 Timothy chapter 1, I know in whom I have believed and I am persuaded that he is able to guard what I have in, uh, entrusted to him. Or Romans chapter 8 and, and verse 38, for I am convinced that there is that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor death nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul says, I'm convinced, I know, I'm confident, I'm persuaded. And because he was, because he had that assurance, he's able to live the life that he lived. And so I ask you, my Christian brothers and sisters, how how are you going to endure the Christian life and all the hardship that it brings, the sacrifices that it demands? How can you find strength to do so? To, to face the obstacles in which you'll face. I, th- I think in a word because of, your, because of assurance. That you say, you know, l- l- listen, the, the world's going to come at you. And you young people and teenagers, listen, you understand this. And, 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 and the, you in the workforce understand this as well. I think we all in some sense understand this. The world looks at us, you, you're stupid, Christian. You're a fool, Christian. Even now we hear increasingly you're a bigot, you're evil, Christian. Right? You're throwing away your life, Christian. How do you face that constant barrage, that constant onslaught. Well, you do so by understanding, by believing, by being assured that you are accepted by God. The God of heaven and earth has accepted me. I know it to be true. And that assurance will help you to stand and face the world. You say, come on, world, bring on your attacks. What can you do to me? What can you take from me? I'm going to live forever in a place called heaven with the God because of his great work. I'm accepted. And if you understand assurance, I think that leads to freedom in your life and encouragement and joy in your life. 
As Pastor Tim Keller says, if you know God is pleased with you, the creator of the world is your father, you can face anything. And I think John lived this out. John understood this. The first Christian historian was a man named Eusebius. I don't know if you ever heard his name and perhaps that's learned in college, Eusebius. The first Christian historian. And Eusebius has this wonderful story of John's life that probably when John was in his 80s, the end of John's life. You see, John had led, when he was living in Ephesus, according to Eusebius, a young man to Christ. And he was discipling this young man. But he had to go on a trip. And so he went to the pastor there, and he asked the pastor to take care of the young man while he was gone. And so when John returned, he asked the pastor, where's the young man I, I left in your care? And according to Eusebius, the man bursts into tears and confesses to John, he is dead dead to God, for he turned wicked and is now a robber, and now instead of the church, he haunts the mountains with a band like himself. And so this young man returned to his life of crime, he's leading a band of highwaymen, you read on, you find out that he's up in the mountains, that whoever approaches them is killed immediately, right, you don't go near these guys, these guys are bad guys, and John, according to Eusebius, rends his clothes, beating his head with great lamentation, cries out, a fine guard I left for my brother's soul, but let a horse be brought to me. So John, John by no means is a young man at this time. He gets on the horse and he goes up to the mountain where it means certain death. The robbers see him coming, they grab him, and he says, just, that's okay, you could take me. I offer you no resistance, just take me to your, leaders, your leader, and they do. And, and, and of course, uh, the man who's leading this group recognizes John immediately. Again, Eusebius says, at that point, the young man, though armed, ran away. Right? So here you have a band of robbers, some old frail man, and a guy with a sword on his hip sees John, and he takes off running. So what did John do? Well, again, Eusebius says, the other, that's John, followed with all his might, forgetting his age, crying, why, my son, dost thou flee from me, thy father, unarmed and old? Right? Why are you running from an old man? What's going on? Fear not, has thou, uh, thou still has hope. If need be, I will willingly endure thy death as the Lord did death for us. For thee I surrender my life, stand, believe, Christ hath sent me. Eusebius ends saying, when the man heard, first he stood, looking down, he threw down his weapons, then trembled and wept bitterly. And on the old man approaching, he embraced him speaking for himself with lamentations as he could as he was baptized a second time with his tears. Now, if you were to come to John and say, John, where do you get the courage to go up to the mountain? That means certain death. Gonna, your life is going to end, perhaps. And where do you have that kind of freedom? Where do you find that kind of love? I think he tells us in the text. I think this is a secret. I know where I'm going. I know that I know him. And you, you can not only know the eternal God, you can know that you know the eternal God. And if you know that you know, that changes everything. So First John is given to us this book so that we can know this, so we can have assurance of salvation. Now, just to be clear, assurance is not presumption. Assurance is not presumption. Spurgeon is helpful, I believe, when he preached. There is a great difference between presumption and assurance. Assurance is reasonable. It is based upon solid ground. Presumption takes for granted and with barren face pronounces that it to, that to 
that to be its own to which it has no right whatever. Beware, I pray thee, of presuming thou art saved. So we're not, we're not after presuming our saved. We want to be assured of our salvation. So how can I be assured of our salvation? Well, John will tell us here that you may be assured of your salvation if you obey him. You obey him. See, obedience leads to our assurance. This is, this is what we call the moral test. And John, as I mentioned, will return to this many times in this little letter. But you notice that obedience leads to our salvation. For according to verse 3, he writes, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Right? So keep his commandments. Verse 5, you're going to say if you keep his word. Verse 6, if we walk as he walked. These are all different ways of saying the same thing. That, that, that our lives, not our words, our, our, our actions, not the things we say, will show that we are truly Christians. Right? The cla- no, listen, the claims, uh, your claims to be a Christian will be backed up with the lives that you live. If you are a Christian, you will do what he says. You will obey him. Now, not perfectly. Okay? Some of you have a tender conscience, and so this can be hard to hear. Because you say, well, I fail him all the time. Does that mean I'm not a Christian? I want you to understand. He's not saying perfect obedience. Just We're going to have to keep reading these verses in context. And we go up, up to verse 8 of chapter 1, we remind ourselves, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We saw in verse, uh, uh, verse 1 of chapter 2 last week that when we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So he understands we are going to sin. Okay? Nothing in this letter uh, suggests that Christians won't sin. But the Christian will have a desire to obey. The Christian will see growing obedience in their lives. I appreciate the words of the converted slave trader, John Newton, who said of himself, I am not what I ought to be, but I am not what I once was, and that by the grace of God. Obedience is the fruit that Christians bear. I want to be clear, we're not saying you're saved by works, we're saved by faith, but the faith that saves us will produce works. It will produce obedience in our lives. Therefore, we can conclude based upon this truth. Listen, if you are living in unrepentant, habitual sin, that should steal your assurance of salvation. If you have habitual sin in your life, that should rob you of that assurance of salvation. In fact, John Piper writes this, and I think it's helpful. Sin is serious because it jeopardizes our assurance of salvation. Perhaps one of the reasons that sin is taken so lightly today is that this truth is not taught in the church. Instead, people are taught that your assurance of salvation has no relation whether you obey God or not. We are taught that saving faith is such a weak and powerless thing that it cannot guarantee any changes in life. And therefore, to look for those changes as evidence of saving faith is wrong. If that is so, he concludes, the first epistle of John is going to have to come out of the Bible. Listen, you know that you're saved because you obey him. Now, my question for you, is that the sign you look for? You think, okay, you, you, you want to have assurance of salvation. Hey, am I truly saved? Do you go? You say, okay, am I obeying him? Is that where we go? Because I think quite often where we go to is some experience we had some many years ago, right? Some, some mystical experience, some emotional event. We, we, or we say, I know I'm a Christian because, you know, um, I, I took notes during the sermon. Uh, clearly, I'm a Christian would do something like that, right? Or I, I know I'm a Christian because my heart was moved during the song, right? Or others look to their, the, you know, duties. They say, I know I'm a Christian because I attend worship, I give my tithe or whatever it is. And those might be helpful to some degree. But, but you know that you know him, according to the Bible, because you desire to obey him. And so if you have no interest in obeying him, 
whether you're a pastor or a deacon or a Sunday school teacher or a youth worker or a stay-at-home mom or a foreign missionary, whatever it might be, if you have no desire to obey him, then you don't know him. You can say, well, I, pastor, I sing loudly at church and I raise my hands and I, I placed my faith in Jesus when I was 11. I read the Bible. Okay, that's all great, but do you obey? That's where he's going to, especially when you don't want to, especially when his commands conflict with your will. You know, obedience sometimes requires what we might call ethical discipline. Ethical discipline. We, we, know, we know about personal discipline. We, we, we know about physical discipline. Many of you exercise physical discipline. You do, what, like, you do what you don't want to do, right, for your health. So you want to eat the donut like any rational person, but you eat the salad instead, okay? That's physical discipline. I'm doing what I don't want to do for my health. We understand professional discipline. Right? We do the things at work that we don't want to do because we want to keep our job. And there are many things at your job, my job, that we don't want to do. We do them. We, you know, we pray, and then we open the email. Okay, here I go. Okay? God help me. Right? We're going to do what we don't want to do um, because we, we, we like our job and we want, want to do it. We have, prof- we have personal discipline. We do dishes. We mow lawns, things like that. All right? you, you maybe not, don't want to do that. You don't want to do these things, but why do you do them? Well, because you need a well-run house. What about ethical discipline? What about ethical discipline? And I would suggest to you today, our world, at least the Western world, has no concept of ethical discipline. That you actually do what you don't want to do because it's the right thing to do. Right? Because in our day, the, mo- the, the typical ethic that we have is what you want. If you want it, that makes it right. Right? So there is no discipline required at all. You decide what's right and wrong. Right is what you want, wrong is what you don't want, and so you don't have to have, to have any discipline whatsoever, right? You, 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 you want to change your gender, well then that's right, simply because you want to do it. You want to gossip, you want to lie, then that's right, simply because you want to do it. There's no ethical discipline in this world. I will do what I don't want to do because it is right, because it is ethical. I tell you, that is not true for the Christian. The Christian does not ask in life, what is it will I want to do, but rather, what does God want me to do? And so the world, when your marriage is troubled and there's difficulty, and people in the world think, okay, I'm in a difficult marriage, and they ask, what's the question? What do I want to do here? And it's quite often, as you know, I want to end this marriage. The Christian in a troubled marriage doesn't ask, what do I want to do? It says, what does God want for my marriage? Right? What does God want? And then they seek after that. They discipline themselves for obedience. So I ask you, Christian, this morning, this might help your, help your assurance of salvation. What are you doing that you don't want to do simply because God commands? And I just want to give you a second. I actually want you to think of something. Just give you a second. What are you doing that you don't want to do because God commands? That might be this wonderful sign that you know him truly, that those who obey him can know that they know him. You say, what, what about those who say they know him but don't want to obey him, right? There's plenty of people who say, I know him, but have no interest whatsoever in actually following him. Well, he tells us in verse 4, doesn't he? He says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. 
So verse 3 is the positive example. Verse 4 is the negative example. As he says, if you don't obey God and say you're a Christian, I'm a Christian, I have no interest in obeying God, John says, you are a liar. You are a liar. So verbal profession of faith plus moral disobedience equals deception. And, and I, I, like, I like this little tag there at the end. It says the truth is not in him, in them. Right? He, in other words, he may know the truth. He may be acquainted with the truth. He may be even teaching the truth. But the truth hasn't gone in. Right? It hasn't penetrated. Demons know the truth. Demons are around the truth. But it's not in them. And how many people affirm that the gospel is true, but it never leads to transformation. The truth never gets inside of them. It never begins to, to produce the fruit of o- obedience within them. The knowledge of God is like a, a, like a beach ball floating on, on, on the surface of a pool. It hasn't gone into their lives. The prophet Isaiah said very, something very similar in chapter 4. He says, uh, of the nation of Israel, this is interesting to me, there is no knowledge of God in the land. This is the covenantal people of God. He says, in, in Israel, there is no knowledge of God in the land. You say, Hosea, how can you possibly know that? Well, he tells us, just read on. For there is swearing, lying, killing, stealing, and adultery. Right? Israel claimed to know God. The prophet says, you don't actually know him because you are persisting in sin. Right? So only as we obey God can we claim to know him, even to love him, to love him. You see, obedience not only leads to our assurance, obedience perfects our love. This is fascinating to me in verse 5. It's not what I expected to read as I was studying this passage. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. I, I expected him to say, but whoever keeps his word can knows him. Whoever, whoever doesn't keep his word doesn't know him. Whoever keeps his word knows him. That's what I was expecting to read. Instead, he says, whoever keeps his word uh, the love of God is being perfected in them. Or maybe your translation says, the love of God is being made complete in them. So we ha- in order to understand this, we have to figure out what he means by love of God. That could be one of two things, love of God. Is that God's love for us or our love for God? Right? It could be either one. Uh, I don't think he's referring to God's love for us uh, because he's uh, been talking about how we can know God, how we relate to God, not how he relates to us. So I think this, this love of God phrase is best understood as our love for God. So what John, if that's the case, John is saying those who keep God's word, their love for God is being perfected. It's being matured. It's becoming a mature love. And that makes sense, I think. You think, why does a Christian obey? Well, ultimately, because he loves God, doesn't he? Right? That's why it's a sign of salvation. Now, this, this, as I mentioned, this is hard teaching. This is hard truth. And you think, maybe some of you think, I don't, I, I'm not sure I like John. Right? You know, I, I, we, Pastor, we need a little more Jesus in this thing. Okay? I'm glad you asked. Okay? Jesus, in John 14, we were studying this in Sunday school this morning. And verse 15 says, if you love me, you will, you know it, obey my commandments. In verse 21, he says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. So I think Jesus was pretty clear. If you love me, you will obey. Right? In other words, we might put it this way. Obedience is evidence of love for God. Right? I, you want to know, I, I love God? Right, well, just don't look in your heart. Just don't look at how you're moved during a song or, 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 or sermon. Are you obeying him? Right? Because when we love someone, we want to do what pleases them. 
even if it doesn't please you. Right? You've experienced that in your life. I want to do what pleases you because I love you, even if it doesn't please me. Like, if you love your parents, you, you will do what's pleasing for them, even if that, that doesn't please you. Right? Like, if, if you love your parents, for instance, you love your father, you will turn off the light when you leave the room. Right? Right? You will. If you love your husband, you will let him watch as much baseball as he wants. Right? You will please him even when it so – we'll just uh, delete that, I'm sure. Um, I'll hear about that later. Okay. <laughs> Uh, see, the thing is that m- many people who hang around God, they don't love God, they use God. They, they need God, but they don't delight in God. God is very useful to them, but he's not their joy. He's not their hope. Perhaps you've heard uh, the little story or of someone who wanted to, just $3 of God. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, not enough to change my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk and a nap in the sunshine. I don't want enough of him to make me love someone I don't like or help someone I don't know. I want happiness, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I I want a pound of the eternal in a carry-out bag. I would like $3 worth of God. Well, not so for the Christian. The Christian longs for all of these things. The Christian longs for him to be the center. And if God's commands are how we draw near to God, how we express our love for God, right, then we'll long for it. Right? Don't you understand that? If God says to you, listen, when you obey me, that's how you, you express your love. In fact, your love for me will grow when you obey me. It will be made perfect. The Christian says, well, then, I, of course, I want to do that because I want to. I want to love you. When, when, when someone you love gives a command, you, you have a long to do it, longing to do it. So if your, your, your parents give you a command, uh, and I'm sure this, this goes for no one in this church, but, you know, outside your, your friends, when, when their parents give them a command and they say, go to bed early, right? They say, don't eat that. They say, don't watch that, right? The parent comes to the teenager and says, listen, I, I really think you need to start putting on deodorant, right? right? And, uh, in, and often teenagers, like, will chafe against these things. Right? I don't want to. I hate deodorant. I like my body's odor. Forget it. I'm not doing it. Right? But, then, but then the young man gets a girlfriend, right? and his heart is drawn towards her. And she says, hey, baby, I think you should start wearing deodorant. Right? <laughs> what happens? He starts lathering on like he's going through a stick a week, right? He's, what? No, it's the same law. It's the same commands. And yet one command was given by one who has their heart and when God has our heart even when he asks us to do things that we don't want to do we we in some sense do want to do it because we know it pleases him I I love him I want to please him so why why do we love him well we know we love him because he first loved us and he loved us by giving us his son Jesus Christ to to come into this world precisely because we don't obey him precisely because we do sin and there Jesus would die upon the cross in order to pay for all of our debt. I mean, we read from Deuteronomy 7 this morning that God's going to repay to their face those who persist in their, their hatred and disobedience towards him. And yet we don't have to fear that because Christ took that upon himself. And three days later, he rose from the dead. And now he, he stands as the crucified Savior and the resurrected Lord. And he says, all who would come to me in repentance and faith, I will forgive their sins. 
and I will give them eternal life, and I will have them adopted into my family that they might be my brother and my sister, and my father in heaven will be their father. And you could, you, by the way, you could do that today. If you don't know him, you could place your faith in Christ and become part of God's people, enter into that covenant, that new covenant which Jesus has died to secure. See, because he did this, we, we love him. We love him. And now he gives us his law as a way to express that love for him. That's, by the way, how God's law has always been. God's law has always been a way to express love. So Israel, when, when, when they, they were in bondage in Israel, uh, in Egypt, I should say, they, they did not obey God and then God came and saved them. That's not what happened. They didn't obey the law. They didn't even have the law. They simply cried out for mercy according to the covenant, and God comes and redeems them from their bondage. He takes them to the mountain, and they're the mountain. He gives them his law, doesn't he? But before he gives the law, before he lays out the commandments, he says this to them. I carried you out on eagle's wings, and I brought you to myself. Now obey me so that you may be my treasured possession. And then, and then he goes on to give the law. But the goal of the law at this point, as you see, is not their redemption. They've already been redeemed. They've already been pulled out of their bondage. The goal, the law at this point, is intimacy with him. Hey, I, I, want, I want you to be treasured in my heart. I want us to be close together. They're, they're saved by faith in the blood of the Passover lamb. And now they obey, not for salvation, but they just simply might be close to God. The purpose of obedience to God has always been relationship. It has always been intimacy. And the Christian wants that. And so as he obeys Intimacy grows. Love, he says there in verse 5, it's beautiful. Love is perfected. Your love for God is matured. Usually when people uh, are getting married, uh, usually they're young, and usually their love is very earnest, but not very mature. Right? And over time, as you know, if you've been married for a while, you learn how to love well. Better words, richer and poorer. Stress and bliss, right? Your love becomes strong. It becomes unyielding. It becomes perfected. It is being completed. But don't you see, Christian, as we obey him, we grow in our love for him, which just draws us closer to him, that we might abide in him. As you see, lastly, I'll be very brief here, obedience is how we abide in him. This is to which John turns to in verse 6. He says, whoever says, um, beginning there at the end of verse 5, we should say, by this we know, by this we may know that we are in him. How? Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Right? That makes sense, doesn't it? You want to be with Jesus? You need to go where Jesus is going. You need to walk as he walked. Let's be very clear. He does not say, he abides in him who talks as Jesus talked. It's not, it's not true. It's he who walks as Jesus walked. Now, we're going to walk with a limp. We've established that. But it's going to look something like Jesus. So, Christian, let, let me just ask you. Let's kind of apply this, wrap this up. In what way are you walking as Jesus walked? Your life ought to look something like Jesus do you have that longing, that desire? I want to do what he says. God, I just want to obey. 
If you do, that's a sign you're on the right path. You ought to be encouraged. You ought to be assured. But if you say you're a Christian and you don't want, want to live a life of faithfulness, you, 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 don't want to, you don't want to forgive those who hurt you, you don't want to control your tongue, you don't want to obey your parents, if you say you're a Christian, right, but you have no desire to control that rage or grow in compassion or generosity, friends, that might be a sign that you're on the wrong road and that you're deceiving yourself and the truth is not in you. And I, I know that's hard to hear. It's hard, it's hard for me to say. I, I pray that, that many of you would find areas, all of us, that we, we would at least, at least do this, find areas in our life where we're less inclined to obey. We might spend some time thinking about that. Why is that? We might talk to somebody about that. I might mention that in our community group. Where, am I, where do I find obedience difficult? Why? Why, why, am I, why is love not propelling obedience in that area? And, and, and that we might begin to repent of that. We might begin to grow. I, I, one of the things I've, as I've lived 10 years now in, in Northern Virginia, and the people here in Northern Virginia are some of the most aspirational people I've ever been around. Uh, they, 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 they have ambition and, as, and aspirations, and, and many people here, they aspire to be healthy, and they aspire to have uh, finance, uh, good finances. They aspire to have academic success. They aspire for uh, athletic uh, uh, excellence. Do you aspire for godliness? Is that like, are you strategizing and planning and thinking, man, I just want to grow in godliness. I just want to be like my Lord. Right? Because what we say with our heart needs to match how we live. Is uh, Warren Wiersbe, when he was a young pastor in Indiana, was meeting with an architect as he was working on the design for a new sanctuary. And Wiersbe asked the architect, why do we need to have such a high ceiling in the auditorium? Why not save some money by building an auditorium with a low ceiling and just build a tall facade in the front of the church building? The architect responded, Pastor Wearsby, the building you construct reflects what you believe a church is and what a church does. You don't use facades on churches to fool people. That's where carnival is. The outside and the inside must agree. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ. But the faith on the inside must agree with the actions on the outside. And when it does, into our heart flows that precious assurance of salvation. I pray that all my Christian brothers and sisters would have. Father, we're thankful for your word this morning and the challenge that it is. Sometimes it's good to be challenged, I think. I'm challenged. I feel even as I preach this that I, I don't love you as I ought. And if I did, it would be seen in greater earnestness and obedience, greater faithfulness and evangelism, greater commitment to prayer. I think perhaps the degree in which we're paying attention the Spirit's working in our life, all of us in some sense feel a bit convicted, I hope. And yet I pray even in the midst of that conviction, those who are truly yours may rest in a beautiful assurance of salvation that though we are far from perfect and have so much to grow, we see obedience in our lives. And in seeing that, we know that we know you. Of course, we only know you because 
you know us. And there is nothing greater in this world than to be known by God. May we treasure that. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.